Welcome to the L&D Career Club podcast, where purpose-driven people come to start and grow the L&D career of their dreams. I'm Sarah Canistra, an L&D career, business, and executive coach, and I'm here to take you on a weekly journey to create a seamless, energizing, and engaging L&D career blueprint so you can live a life of fulfillment, inspiration, and freedom. If you're here to find your first L&D role, move up the L&D ladder, or land that high-level L&D role you've been dreaming of, welcome to the club. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the L&D Career Club podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, I have been taking some sporadic breaks from this show. Don't worry. I am back in action now, but many of you know that I actually just launched another podcast, a second podcast called The Good Learning Podcast, and that's been taking up a little bit of my attention over the last several weeks. So um, I've been focused on getting that off the ground that just launched on Monday the 30th. So if you're listening to this live, when it comes out on the 31st, uh, you have a lot of podcasts of mine to listen to this week. We dropped three episodes, and that podcast is very, very different from this one in the sense that every week is structured exactly the same. Uh, Every week we're interviewing a different L&D practitioner on some really great learning initiatives that they had a hand in developing, implementing, rolling out, etc. So very excited about that podcast. Um, It's in conjunction with the rollout of the Good Learning Agency, which is a fractional CLO agency. You can get all the information about that on realgoodlearning.com. I'm really excited about this new adventure and thank you all so much for your your support. So many of you have have reached out and, and gave your congratulations and shared how excited you are. And I'm really excited too. And I think it's a really wonderful companion uh, podcast, especially to those of you who are, you know, are moving throughout your L&D career. So whether you're trying to get into the first, to the first time, or you are growing your career, that podcast will be a great companion to learn more about the learning and development space, to be able to upskill yourself, to learn about what different people are doing inside of the space and become a better candidate and become a better uh, practitioner yourself as well. So really wonderful companion there. Uh, a couple of announcements before we dive into today's episode of some other exciting things. Uh, along with Good Learning, we are doing a, as part of our rollout, we are doing the 10 days of Good Learning right now. Uh, when you listen to this, it'll be on day eight. <laughs> and one of the things that we're doing to wrap everything up on Thursday, November 2nd is a free event. So we're doing an event called Ask a CLO, which is basically like speed dating with a, <laughs> with a, with a learning advisor, one of our fractional CLOs at the Good Learning Agency, an opportunity to ask us any strategic learning and development questions. So I put the link for that event. It's live. It's free. It'll be recorded if you're registered for it. Um, but it is a free event and it will be um, happening on November 2nd at 2 p.m. Eastern. So I put the link to register for that. And then I have a, I have a bunch of announcements coming about the LMD Career Club. I'll probably do I might do a whole podcast episode on it just to give you all all the updates. It's pretty meaty, um, but some high level high level updates is that, and I had mentioned this I think last week or maybe the week before. I definitely posted it on LinkedIn. But we are transitioning the LND Career Club from six months to one year, uh, and right now it's still at the six month price, but you still get one year access. So I haven't changed any of the pricing structure yet. It will be changing. So if you've been thinking about joining the LND Career Club. Now you can, you can get full year of access to all of the programming, all of the support inside of there, all of the events that we do, all of the live programs that we do in there, all of the courses, you get access to that for a full year now at the six month price. So I don't know, that's going to change soonish. <laughs> I'm still figuring out when it's going to change. So um, take advantage of it now before <laughs> I change it, whenever that might be um, sometime in the next uh in the next couple of weeks, most likely. But uh, one of the things that is changing with the LD Career Club that will impact um, those of you who have been in some of my smaller programs is that we are now going to do all of our live programs. So this year I've done Nail Your Niche and Build Your LD Network. We're doing Mindset Magic right now. Uh, all of those smaller two, three, four week programs, those are no longer going to be available outside of the LD Career Club. So we're really focused 
focusing on building a community around each of these programs and these courses. And so those will be just for members of the L&D Career Club going forward starting in January. So that'll be one of the big changes. There'll still be some more public facing uh, courses and well, not necessarily courses, but um mini, mini programs or master classes and things like that that you'll be able to join if you're not in the L&D Career Club. But all of the live, big live programming is going to be inside of there and we're going to work on expanding those. So with that, and again, I'm going to talk more about this in another podcast episode, but with that, the last live program ever for right now uh, that's going to be outside of the L&D Career Club is what I do every single winter time, which I'm really excited about, which is the Nail Your L&D Niche program live. And we are going all out for this last one. So normally the way Nail Your L&D Niche live works is that you get access to the Nail Your Niche course. We get to have two live calls where you can ask me questions. We have a group community chat where we can chat amongst ourselves. Um, And we're just blowing it up. We're blowing it up and we're blowing it out. So uh, right now it is going to be, uh, just from a dates perspective, it'll kick off on November 29th. It'll be the 29th through the 15th. So we do it for two full weeks together. Um, Rather than it being just the asynchronous course plus uh, two live sessions, we're doing five live sessions where I'm not only going to be helping to teach you the material in there, but also answer questions as we go along step by step. So we'll have five live sessions with me, uh, and it's on a major pre-sale price right now. It's on sale for $333 for the two weeks. That will go up in the next week or so um, as we start announcing it to the public and opening it up for registration. That will go up to $555. So if you want to access this program, uh, this live program, the last time we're doing it, Right now it's on presale for $333. There's a payment plan available as well. I highly suggest you hop on it if you are wanting to join this last live program. So, all right, that was a lot of updates. <laughs> I know some of you listen to me on a 1.2 or 1.5 speed, which I talk so fast, so I can only imagine what that actually sounds like. But uh, hopefully you got all of that information as quickly as I could get it to you. And if you have any questions, please feel free to let me know. You can always DM me on LinkedIn. Happy to answer any questions you have about um, good learning or the event that we're doing on Thursday or the Nail Your Niche Live program that we are doing or any changes to the L&D Career Club please, please, please feel free to reach out to me. Okay, on to today's episode. I'm so excited that we have Dr. Keith Keating on the show today. And it's extra special he's on the show today. And you you all know me. I like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself the most organized person in the world, but I, or the biggest planner in the world necessarily, but I will say this, I wanted to make sure when I interviewed Keith that this, uh, this podcast aired, uh, line, this podcast airing lined up with his book release. So I'm really excited because this is coming out on the exact same day that his book is coming out too. So we worked our magic that way. And Dr. Keith Keating is a chief learning and talent officer who has collaborated with numerous Fortune 500 companies worldwide. He's the author of The Trusted Learning Advisor, which we're going to talk about today. It's a groundbreaking L&D practitioner's guide to becoming a trusted learning advisor. He's a respected industry author, a sought-after keynote speaker, and he champions lifelong learning as the pathway to seizing control of one's career trajectory. He's also an advocate for talent development and leverages his platform to emphasize human talent as the cornerstone of organizational success. Y'all are going to love this episode. We talk about all the things. So we talk about, of course, what it means to become and stay a trusted learning advisor. We also dive into Dr. Keith's his background. And I think it's going to blow your minds where he started from and where he is now and what his journey has been for him to become a trusted learning advisor. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. I know that I did. And make sure to go out there and grab the trusted learning advisor. I put the link to the book in the show notes and I'll see y'all on the other side. Keith, welcome to the L&D Career Club podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you for being here. And I appreciate everything that you do for our community, including this podcast. Oh, thanks. Well, right back at you. Um, and speaking of what you do for our community, you're about to have a new book come out, which we're going to uh, talk a lot about today. So really what we're going to be looking at is what it means to 
become and to stay a trusted learning advisor. So that is what the name of your book, right? The trusted learning <laughs> advisor. So we're really gonna, so spoiler alert, that's what we're talking about today. But before we dive into what does it take to become one? What does it take to stay one? I'd love for you to share more about yourself, your particular journey in the talent space. Would love to know how you got into L&D and what your journey has been like. I took a look at your LinkedIn. I went all the way, I scrolled all the way back um, and saw, you know, that you were a senior trainer, an analyst and have worked your way up to becoming a, a CLO. So what was that journey like and how, how did you get into the L&D space and what was your journey like to grow within it? What's funny is what's not on there is, you know, working at Wendy's and working at the mall and so um, I guess the best way to answer that is where I am today and then kind of work my way backwards. So today I'm a chief learning officer for Archwell Holdings, which is a mortgage services company. I am a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and I have, as you said, a book coming out, uh, The Trusted Learning Advisor. And that's today. So today I'm entrenched and this is my life and I, and I love it. And I'm so blessed and thankful to be a part of this. Um, to understand where I came from, I have to start with the fact that I'm a high school dropout. So I dropped out of high school at 15. Um, I struggled with education for most of my formative years. I grew up predominantly overseas. My father was in the military and we moved around a lot. And so by the time I came to the U.S. when I was around 13 or so, my education was just significantly different than that of the education system in Florida. So my parents would go into one room and they would say, yeah, Keith's above average. He should skip a grade. He's brilliant. Love him. They'd go next door and the teacher would say, he has a learning disability and he may need to be put into a special education group or be held back. And I was like, what are these different stories happening? Plus I was bullied in school and it just wasn't a good time. And I made the decision to drop out. And my father told me it was going to be the worst decision of my life. My, of course, my teachers didn't support it either. Um, they said I would be destined for a life of fast food, which as if there is something wrong with that, first of all, there's not, it is a job. It is an important job, especially when we don't have people in those jobs and you go to the fast food and you're like, where's, there's no one working here. Where are the exactly. people? Where's my food? <laughs> so I did exactly what they said. And I got a job at fast food and, uh, Wendy's was, I don't know if I should say that. Well, whatever I said, Wendy's, uh, was where I was for about two years. And I just knew I wanted to be something else, but I had no idea what it was. I didn't have any career counseling growing up. I didn't have anybody that told me I was special or that you know I had a skill. So one day I was looking in the newspaper because that's how old I am. And you know we had to, used to have to look in the newspaper for jobs on Sundays. Sunday was the best day when everybody posted their good jobs. And there was this job for Comp USA. And that's before I think even Best Buy existed. Yeah. And it I, was I for Comp USA. So, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And it was for a trainer. And so it was to be a Microsoft Office 2000 trainer. So it was right when the, the Office 2000 was coming out, like right before, like maybe it was 1999 or something. Why 2 k Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the craziness that never happened. We made it. We survived. <laughs> And then the job was to teach the Social Security Administration offices how to use Office 2000. And so I went to the interview and it was the worst interview that's ever happened. So I had never been a trainer before. I had no idea. I just knew I know office. So how hard could it be to be a trainer, which was a disrespectful idea to the industry. So I go to the interview and she's like, can you do a test teach? I'm like, oh, crap. What's a test teach? And she's like, well, just you know, for five minutes, teach me how to use Microsoft Word. And I was so terrified that I just started coughing to buy myself time. And so I coughed throughout like the first two or three minutes. And I was like, oh, it's really important for me to be here. You know, I'm just getting over this sickness, but I'm just... <laughs> so she interrupts me and she's like, yeah, you sound really ill. You know, thanks for coming in. You know, we'll call you. And I was like, okay, I didn't get that job. Well, they called about a week or so later and offered me the job. And so I was 17, I think, or maybe just turning 18. And as I said, my job was to travel around the country teaching social security administration offices how to use Office 2000. So I walk into my first class and it's my parents. They're 40 to 60. I'm 17, 18. I'm their kid. They're my parents. I don't know what I'm doing at all. 
I, you know, I'd been studying for weeks and weeks on the content and such, but no idea the, the art, the craft, the science behind training learning and development, or even how to facilitate. And it was the worst class that ever existed. <laughs> but, and, and I apologize, you know, if anybody, if they're listening or if their children are listening, I'm sorry that I did that to your parents, <laughs> but I went back and I got 0.0001% better. You know, that night I was in the hotel room in front of a mirror and I just practiced and practiced and practiced. And the next day it was a tiny bit better. And the next day a tiny bit better because every day I went back and I practiced really hard. And it was about six months in that I felt like I saw the first glimmer in someone's eyes that I was actually teaching them something. That moment, we all know that yeah. moment. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a high, you know, it was like, I have value. I'm able to learn something and I'm able to help somebody else learn what I've learned and and I'm not terrible at something. And so I kept at it and then about set a year the bar, later, set the bar real nice and low for yourself. Yeah. I am not wow, I am not terrible at this. This is great. That, hey, it's a start compared to the first first day. So uh, a year later, so I had my first review with my manager and I asked her, why did you hire me? I had to have been the, the worst interviewer. And she said, you were, you absolutely were, but you had car insurance, you didn't have a criminal background, and you were willing to travel to all these little towns that some people aren't willing to go to. So the answer to your question is, how did I get into the, in the industry? It was a bit of luck. It was tenacity for not giving up. And it was a little bit of arrogance about, oh, training? Anybody can do training. Yeah. And that's the mindset I think that a lot of our stakeholders have, which we can come back and talk about later. But anyway, long story short, that was my entrance. Um, it was a job. That. It was a job for a long time until it became a passion. And then it became a calling. And so for me, you know, one thing I want to share is a lot of people always say, you know, you, gotta, you, you have to find your passion. You have to find your bliss and whatnot. I believe that you can find that within anything that you're doing. And once you're able to switch your mindset, you know, I wasn't, I don't believe I was born for this. It wasn't, I grew up like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. Yeah. But I was able and I'm still able on a daily basis to find the meaning in what I'm doing, whatever it is. And so once you can do that as an employee and you, you can really, it changes your perspective on your job. Yeah. I think, you know, what, what I always say too, is that you don't have to make your passion your job either. So I think a lot of people will mm -hmm. say, oh, this is my passion. Now I'm going to go make this a job or a business. And, and then you're like, oh, now I'm really seeing how the sausage gets made or this one thing that I loved so much. I now have like, you know, made it into a, into a job for myself. And so I love that you, you almost took the opposite route where it's, you were, you were open and you said yes to things that other people obviously said no to. That's how you got that job. And that allowed you the opportunity to step into something that maybe you wouldn't have recognized to be a passion later on in life too. So I, I, I love, I love that, that journey. And I mean, from there, how did, how did you kind of make the leaps in your career to go from, you know, being the comp USA or, you know, Microsoft trainer yeah. to, you know, working your way up in, in this industry and becoming, you know, a, a CLO, there's not many CLOs in the, in the, you know, in, in the world necessarily, as far as that job title goes. So how did, how did you go from, from comp USA to, yeah. you know, to, to this high level leadership? What were some of those kind of key moments in your career that stand out to you that helped you make that, that leap? The best advice I could give to anyone is be a linchpin. Look for a gap that exists and figure out how to fill that gap. I didn't, I mean, truthfully, I, it's not like I set out with that mindset, but I realized that's what I had been doing. That's how I built up my career. So after CompUSA, uh, there was another type of training job. And then eventually I found my way into a training organization and it was at the dot-com boom. And so I just learned everything I could. HTML, I was one of the first flash trainers out there. Uh, you know, I went to, um, I'm drawing a blank, the guy that made Star, Star Wars, oh, Skywalker, uh, Luke, uh, not Luke, um, George, George Lucas. Lucas. Yeah, so I was a trainer for George Lucas for a while at the Skywalker Ranch, teaching them how to use flash. 
Uh, so tons of these cool no, no big deal, everyone. No big deal. <laughs> I completely oh, forgot about who's it. Who's that guy? George Lucas. Oh yeah, I was doing. Yeah, I was training over there. No, you know I mean, that okay. guy. It wasn't for him directly, of course, <laughs> but it was still a cool experience to be at the uh, the Skywalker Ranch. But it the 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 answer to your question is just finding gaps that exist and fill it because there are a ton of gaps in every organization, and. That's to me my secret to success that I want to share with everybody is I'm never worried about having a job because I know that there are always going to be problems in organizations to solve. That's inherently that's what I am at the root is a problem solver. I help find the problem, then I help solve the problem. And so my message to to any listener is always look for that problem. A lot of people have that mindset that, oh, that's somebody else's problem. That's not my job description. That's not my job title forget you have a job title, forget you have a job description and figure out what problems you can be solving for people. And that's how you're going to continue to work your way up. And so that's that the answer is every job was me solving a problem for somebody else, uh, including the problem I had, which was I didn't have that experience, but I could go out and figure out how to get that experience and then get to that that next level to level up. I love that. One last kind of journey question for you before we move on and talk more about becoming that trusted learning advisor. You mentioned you dropped out of high school and now you have a, a doctorate. So there's mm-hmm. obviously there was some education that happened in between all of this too. I, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your educational journey from that moment you you dropped out and then you're finding yourself in this new career. What sparked you to go back to school and what did that look like? Oh, good question. Um, it was long. It was very, 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 very long. So I took uh, a little break after I dropped out, I ended up getting my GED. And then I tried community college for a little bit. And I just was emotionally stunted and was still facing the same problem that I didn't fit into that education system. I, I couldn't learn the way they wanted me to learn. And I didn't want to learn what they wanted me to learn. Um, you know, transparently, I'm ignorant when it comes to anything related to math. Don't know anything about it. Never wanted to learn it. Not my skill set. Don't care. Luckily, <laughs> I proved myself right that I never needed to know algebra. I didn't need to know trigonometry and refused it. And today, you know, X amount of years later, I still haven't had to use it, which is great. Yeah. So I did a little bit of community college throughout the years, uh, probably it was about a good eight year break. And then I was at a company and they offered tuition reimbursement. And I was like, all right, as long as I don't have to pay for it, I'm willing to, to do this. And so I spent, I think five years at that company and each year I took advantage of their $5,000 or whatever it was. And by the time uh, it was a fourth or fifth year, I had enough credits to get my first degree. And so then it, it felt really exciting, but I was older. Gosh, I must have been close to 30 at that point before I even got my bachelor's degree. And then I still stayed with that company. And so I was like, all right, let's keep going with the master's. And by then, the way that colleges worked had changed because you had life credits at that point. Um, You could apply what you were learning in your work. And that was the shift for me is that at 15, 16, 17, it didn't make sense. I hadn't had any real world knowledge. So I didn't know how to apply what I was learning. Fast forward, I had 10 years of organizational experience. And so immediately it all made sense. There was scaffolding. I was attaching it to knowledge I had already gained, or I could go back and apply immediately. It was like, oh, now this makes sense. There's relevance. It's contextualized. I get it. The missing, the missing piece. Yeah. The why, why, why am I learning this? Like with again, algebra, why am I learning this? I don't know how to use this. I'm never going to use it. But instead, when it was something curated, you know, my bachelor's was in business and then my first master's was in leadership, then I could apply that immediately. And then there was a long pause in between. And I had a CEO that was in the doctoral program at Penn. And he kept saying, you know, you don't you want to invest in yourself? Don't you want to do this? Don't you want to do this? And my answer was no, I don't. I don't believe in the higher education system. And by the way, the price tag is way too hefty for me. Yeah. <laughs> and to be blunt, we and transparent, um, I negotiated with him to pay for a big chunk of it. And once he agreed to do that, and I'm so thankful that he did because that door opened, then I was able to move on. But 
the the cost of these programs in higher education are more than most people make in a year or two or three years. And I just refuse to go into debt for that because for me, the the work experience is much more valuable than the higher education because there is a there's a delay. There's a delay in what universities are teaching versus what is needed in the workforce. And so that experience was much more important and is still more important to me. You know, if I'm hiring somebody, I don't look at their degree. I look at your experience level. What are you going to be able to hit the ground with running? And so I'm I'm saying that because it's important for me that listeners understand that I'm not advocating for investing your life savings in a higher education program. I am advocating for use your organizations to fund your education. 100%. If they're only giving you 5,000 a year, fine. Take that 5,000 a year and you know, after five or six years, you're gonna have enough credits that you're gonna be able to graduate if that's something that you wanna do. But do not go into debt and get caught up in this cycle where you're having to pay for it for years, even after you're finished. It's it's an atrocity for what we go to. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. And um, listeners know know this about my story too. But I have a very similar background, and I uh, I graduated from high school, went to college, dropped out of college very early. I didn't uh, didn't jive with it. There wasn't a I didn't feel a strong connection and purpose to it. And I wanted to work. I, I loved I loved working. I was working three jobs, and I ended up saying, all right, well, I could work full time and make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And when you know, and why am I going to school? But when I was in my l- late twenties, my organization had tuition reimbursement. I was already in a training role and I was able to utilize life credits plus their, like, plus my Mm -hmm. tuition reimbursement to go and get my degree in organizational leadership and learning. And uh, so I have a very similar path to that. And I couldn't agree more of, you know, I think, especially from a career perspective, a lot of people will go and put themselves in, into debt and they'll, they'll go and do that to, to only for the sole purpose really of trying to make themselves more marketable. And mm-hmm. what I'm hearing you say is a lot of that marketability is actually in the skill set that you're gaining from that on the job work. And how are we translating that as well? So uh, I just wanted to say I, I I definitely second what you're saying from my own my own personal experience too there. <laughs> yep. And it's it truly is all about your skills and your experience. And even if you have a degree, use the tuition reimbursement. That's a your money. That is your money. Use it. I don't care what level you're in, what career you're in, your background, your education. Use it every single year. And the other piece, just to call myself out, is it sounds a little bit hypocritical for me to have my doctorate, multiple degrees, to say, hey, that's not very important you know, in your career. Uh, to be transparent, the reason that I got the doctorate was because I wanted to have a voice. And I wanted to be able to get to this level for two reasons. One, I'm a high school dropout, and I wanted to prove that you do not have to follow the traditional education system to be successful. Yeah. Don't have high school degree. I, you know, I couldn't even take the high school tests now. I would fail miserably, yet I'm able to achieve a doctorate from an Ivy League university. And so are you. If that is the path that you want to take, don't let your past or your, your education experience or lack thereof make the determination for you. And the second reason I did that, besides that piece of it, is the only, not the only way, but an an important or a seemingly important measure to other people is this doctorate. So now I have this tool that gives me a platform that I can now advocate for skills, for continuous learning, for lifelong learning um, as, as a doctor. But I don't know if I'm making it very clear. It wasn't that... I just, I knew I needed to get a platform and this helped me get that platform. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it sounds like too, you had a strong why behind it. It wasn't mm-hmm. just a, oh, you know, more of a, a willy nilly, like, okay, if I'm going to do this, here are the reasons, here, here are the reasons why, why I am going to do this. Right. And so I think, and having someone else help to, to, to fund that for you too. Absolutely. I think even those reasons, having those good reasons, I'm sure if you had to fund it yourself, the funding probably would have outweighed the, the, the why too. So I think I couldn't, a, I can't afford a, it. Yeah. I think there's a nice balance there of like, okay, what does that actually look like financially? And then also what am I going to do with this? You know, because yes. even if someone's paying for it, you're still paying for it with your time, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, there, there's still things that you have to say no to because you're saying yes to that. So I think it's, you know, you still have this, this, 
there's a, a greater purpose for it, whether you're, you know, whether you, you had to pay for it or, or not, but that's, that's really what I'm hearing from you is like, Hey, you, you knew what this would be able to afford you versus just like doing it for the sake of doing it, uh, so that, is what, what, what I'm hearing. Yes. And to that point, I want to share one last message on this before yeah. so we can move on. I had the expectation that the world would open up when I finished this. I thought I'm going to get my doctorate and companies are going to be chasing after me. I'm going to add another zero to my salary at the end and the world is going to be mine. It did not happen. Yeah. And it does not happen. I have to work harder every single day to try and get the investment back from that. So the reason I'm saying that is, is I know there are probably listeners who are like, oh, maybe I should go invest this money, get my doctorate because then I'm going to become a CLO. No, you're not. A lot of organizations don't even want to hire people that have a doctorate because they think that you are an academic. They think you're going to be too expensive. They don't understand that it's possible to be a practitioner scholar, which is what I am. I'm not just a scholar. So just kind of as a caveat, if, if you have this idea of, oh, I'm going to go invest this money and then the world's going to open up for me, it, it doesn't happen that way. You know, I had to learn the hard way <laughs> and I feel like I need to share that message because yeah. I've talked to other people who are like, oh, I'm going to do that. Oh, okay. Well, think, think twice about what you want to do with it. If yeah. your goal is to get that corporate CLO job, it's not going to do that for you. If your goal yeah, is to go to be... teach somewhere. Yeah. It has to be like beyond just being marketable. Yes. I think that's, I think a lot of people see like, oh, if I get the letters, I'm more marketable. And there has to be just more, you have to, there's just more to it than just, oh yes, I have that piece of paper and now, and now I, I'm more marketable. So yeah, I'm hearing, hearing a lot of, of know why you're doing it, have realistic expectations at the end of it as well. Um, and be cautious of the, the financial in, investment. And, yes. you know, I think when we think too about, you know, what's most important about a lot of these programs and I kind of want to shift into, into the, the, the book that, that you've written, which is coming out very soon, um, right on the 31st. Yes, of this 31st. Month? Okay. Awesome. And so, you know, you, I want to leave some room, room for surprise for people as they're, as they're reading the book, but you know, I, I, cause I think there's a, I, I think it's a good segue from the education piece because there's a lot of what you can learn in school and then there's practical application. Uh, and there's what you learn in school, then you get to the workplace and you're like, well, what the heck's going on? And, you know, I think when we, there's this, this big theme around being order takers. And a lot of that I think can come from that model of, you know, almost academia and the way that we, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're kind of like, how teachers are told to to teach and how we're listen how, how we learn and you know a lot of that model carries over and so I really would love to know from a high level perspective like how did L and D how did we get into the place where we became order takers has it always been like this or is this something that we've evolved into? Unfortunately, we were born order takers from an industry perspective. Uh, yeah, I think it's children too. But from an industry perspective, you know, if you look back at the 1800s, the manufacturing revolution, industrial revolution, when training first began, the manager determined what the employee needed to do. You know, they needed to, to move this widget here. And so they told somebody, hey, go teach the workforce, teach our employees to move this widget here. And so that's what we did. And it evolved a little bit over time. You know, when you got to the 1900s or so, early 1900s, we still had factories. Uh, so we're still teaching people that same mindset. Maybe towards the mid 1900s, there was uh, new ideas like, you know, they need to learn math, they need to learn communication, they need to learn these other skills. But it was still someone else making that determination and then telling us and we executed. So it's embedded in our role. It's embedded in the culture that someone decides who, what, where, when, why, and how that learning intervention occurs. They then give us that order and we execute that order. And the problem for us now is that we have to evolve. We've always needed to evolve, but now it's becoming much riskier for us to stay in that mindset because the question that is going to be asked really soon is, then what's the purpose? Why do I need L&D? Because I've got ChatGPT now. I've got these other cool AI tools 
that our stakeholders and business partners are going to figure out pretty soon that they make pretty good training. Not great, doesn't follow the science of learning, but our business partners sometimes don't care. Good exactly. can be good enough. And they're like, I can go into ChatGPT and I can create a leadership program in 30 seconds. Then I export that to Gamma. Gamma creates this beautiful slide deck. Then it can go into this program and that program. So do I actually need you? And it's a really important question that they're asking and should be asking. And we've got to be able to answer that. And the answer to that is we need to be trusted learning advisors so that we are strategic business partners embedded in the business, delivering value to the organization. And when I say value, I'm not talking about our value. I'm not talking about level one, level two, level level whatever you want from Kirkpatrick yeah. or Phillips or you know, Thalheimer's LTIM, but it's the value that's meaningful to the organization in a way that they understand. And that's an important distinction because we come up with our own valuation and we run these quote ROI reports and we're so excited. And then we share them with somebody outside of L&D and they're like, what is this? I, yeah. I don't understand this. This isn't even meaningful to me. Yeah, but see our level threes are showing that this happened and we invested this. And, and they're this like, and that, WTF and is a double, is a level three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the moral of the story is to your question, we've always been order takers. We've needed to evolve, but there wasn't a threat previously. Mm -hmm. The threat against us might've been a different training, learning and development organization, a third-party consulting company who might be able to do it better, somebody with a cool you know, Fortune 500 job title. That was quote our threat, but it was contained. Yeah, an now, individual, more of an individual threat versus a threat to yes. the industry. Yes, and now it's mm -hmm. truly a threat to the yeah. industry because AI does a really solid job at our work. And if you, and then the second reason is, and I don't want to get political, but if you look at what's happening to DE and I, you know, I, I would have never guessed that three or four years ago that DE and I would start to disintegrate. And, you know, chief diversity officer would no longer be a role and fortune 500 companies would be getting rid of those people. Well, why not the same for L and D? You know, why do we need all of these people? Let's just put a couple of people in the business Let's have them understand AI. Let's have them be subject matter experts and let's have them create the content. And that's not actually a bad idea. So we have got to evolve from just sitting on the sidelines, being reactive to being proactive, strategic business partners. And that is a trusted learning advisor. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things too, I mean, the, the, obviously it's the name of your book, Trusted Learning Advisor. So it's not just about being a great learning advisor, but being mm -hmm. a trusted one. So where, where do you see, I think this, this, this bodes really well to what we're talking about of if there isn't trust, then it's really easy for your team and you to be, you know, pushed to the side. Right. But if there's a lot of trust there and a lot of value, then obviously it becomes harder to do that. So where do you see the most well-intentioned learning advisors losing trust in their organizations? And this aligns with your philosophy and your mission, but it's the credibility of the person. Are they truly credible as a learning and development practitioner? And many of us are not yet. We can be, but our industry needs to be respected. But then we have to back that up with our own skill sets. And one of the things that I love about the industry is we're very inclusive. You know, we'll, we'll wrap our arms around anybody who wants to join the industry. The problem with that is that then the credibility becomes at risk. And we've got people who take a quick course and then all of a sudden they're instructional designers or, and I'm raising my hand right now, like me, I went to a job interview for a trainer that I was a trainer, had no experience. I was horrible. It took me years and years to build the proper skills. Here's the damage I did along the way. I was an order taker that entire time. I delivered a lot of bad training classes and there was people in that class who probably went away with, oh, L&D sucks, training sucks. Why do I wanna come back to that? And so every time we deliver a bad experience, whether it's digital or in-person or virtual, we are planting that seed that we're not needed and we're not valued. 
And so we have to be credible at what we're doing. And to do that means you need to understand the science of learning. There is truly a science to what we do. If you have not read Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, that should be your second reading material because my book should be the first. <laughs> Love that. Every... <laughs> Love that. Yes. We'll link to both those books in the show notes. <laughs> every practitioner must read the science of learning to understand elaboration, generation, learning transfer, and all of the other aspects that many of us don't know, myself included. I didn't know this stuff until about five or six years ago. So I've been in the career 25 years. So for about 18 years, didn't even know there was a science of learning. Didn't it? I didn't care because it wasn't. I wasn't aware of it. And so we've got to make our practitioners aware that there's. We have to treat it. If we want to be treated with respect, we have to treat our industry with respect. And that means we've got to build the skills necessary to to be able to support our business partners. So the answer to your question is the, there's many aspects of trust. There's five pillars that I talk about. But the most important one for us today, I think, is credibility, and that's being able to establish our credibility. And to do that, it starts with having the skills necessary. Yeah, and I and I even taking that a step back, right, where it's like the awareness of those skills too. And so mm -hmm. I, I, the two things you mentioned that really stood out to me were like you said, like I didn't even care, I I didn't care, and I I wasn't aware because I didn't care, right? So I think it's like that level of care. And mm -hmm. there is a lot of moving and shaking and a lot of things changing in our industry right now. And you have to care. I mean, you have to care about all of it. It's hard to, you know, become an expert in all the things that are changing all the times, but you have to stay on top of, okay, what is, what is happening here? That what is a trend that's now just beyond a fad and becoming hyper aware of these things. So that way you are you are with the times. I think a lot of times we lose trust too, because we're operating such an outdated operating system, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the business has moved there, like the, we're on, we're on Microsoft 2000, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and the business and bring it back, right? The business is, you know, is, is all the way to today, whatever version we're on now. Right. And so yeah. it sounds like too, that yeah, I, I love that idea of like the being away, like, you're like, I didn't care. <laughs> like, but now, you know, looking back, it's important for us to think, to say like, Hey, well, we need to, I think we need to care more. I think the more that we care and we are able to build an awareness then we're going to be able to build more trust because we do gain that credit, that credibility. Cause we're, we're educating ourselves, ourselves there. So I, I love that. And I think to me too, one of my favorite parts, I did get an advanced, oh yeah, I got to read, read a little bit of your book, but, um, uh, one of my favorite parts, I like actually think I clapped when I was reading it um, <laughs> at the part where you talk about it's called to challenge or not to challenge. Mm. And I love it so much because I think there's a lot of advice out there now that tells us we should always challenge our stakeholders, right? That even if it's not a great idea or if they're trying to get us to take an order, whatever it may be, that we should always, always challenge them. And you bring up so many great points that it's not just that black or white, like yes or no to challenge, but it's about being so much more than just saying no or pushing back all the all the time. And I love that you shared that when you challenge a stakeholder, it's very situational. So what would you say people listening need to keep in mind when they are deciding whether or not to challenge a stakeholder? And is challenging them always the right thing to do? The first thing you have to consider is your relationship. Where are you with that relationship? Is this a brand new relationship that you're just establishing or have you already built that credibility, built that trust that then you know there's a foundation that you can build from? You have to have a foundation before you can really start to challenge them. So when we're building relationships for the first time, we're going to be taking the orders. And caveat, there is a difference between taking the order and order taking. We can talk about that gotta a little bit. Gotta read, yeah, gotta read, <laughs> yes, gotta read the whole book. Read the book. <laughs> so we're gonna take the order initially, and more often than not, it's to your point, how do you respond to that? So first you look at your relationship. Is a brand new relationship. Where are you on that, that history trail? The second piece is, is there a fire? And this is probably the one I would say it's really important to remember. Um, when, your house is on fire or your neighbor's house is on fire, you're not sitting there discussing, what do you think the root cause of that fire is? You know, do you think it was electrical? Do you think it was arson? Oh, did somebody leave? I bet they left the stove on. That's exactly what they would have done. They left the stove on. No, 
You're not having those discussions. You are getting as much water as you can through as many different channels to put that fire out, to minimize the pain, to minimize the damage. And then afterwards, you're going to take a step back to figure out how did that fire happen to hopefully be able to prevent it and to be proactive in the future. So you've got to think about where's my stakeholder coming from at this moment? And is this a fire? Because if it's a fire, I need to react with them and be there to support them. If it's not yet a fire, then maybe you could consider how do I want to respond to this? Is this a time for me to flex my consulting skills, my negotiation or influence skills? So what's your history? What's the situation that's happening? Is this a fire? Do we need to put it out? Uh, is there a third one that comes to mind? Um, I think the other piece I would say is when your stakeholder says no to you, sometimes it may not be no in perpetuity. It could be just no for right now. And we often think that like no means no forever. Uh, but keep in mind, this is another important piece. Your stakeholders are probably order takers too. They've probably received an order from somebody else who received it from somebody else. And they're just coming and they're giving you that order that their boss gave them. And when you're like, oh, we need to do a needs analysis and I need to talk to this, and I need to do this. They're like, uh, yeah, none of that's meaningful to me. Just execute the order. I've got so many other things going on I need to take care of. Just please take care of this. Our job is to be our job is to make our stakeholders the hero of their own stories. Ooh. Think about that for a minute. Let that digest because often mm. I feel like we are trying to make ourselves look good. And almost villainize our stakeholders sometimes, yes. right? Yes. Ooh, I love this. But I feel like I've been reading a lot of fantasy novels now and I feel like <laughs> I, I, I see all the, the characters coming together here. <laughs> yes, we want them, if we make them the hero of their story, we're going to become the hero of our own and we're going to have a lot more longevity. And I, and I'll give you an example. Each year I try whatever organization I'm with, I do a learning conference internally. And it's not just L and D saying how great we are. My goal is to have the stakeholder present their case study and L and D can be there to support, but it's not our story necessarily. You know, like for example, at GM, if we're able to help a specific brand sell more vehicles, that is a brand story. It's about the sales consultants. It's about the management team. It's about the tools that are in place that are helping them. We know we're the ones that did it. We know it's our you know, processes and everything that we did, but we can't position it that way and we don't need to, but we can have the brands talk about it. And then we are a subject of that, if you will. Um, so make, just remember, make your stakeholder the hero of their story. I love, I love that. There's so many like really wonderful sound bites there. And I think, yeah, we often, we kind of roll our eyes at the stakeholders and we're like, oh, they don't understand. But I think the perspective of they're often order takers themselves. And it, we're, this is just what, this is our full-time job, but it, that it's just one part of their full-time job. And I think mm -hmm. like, we have to remember like that there's a different, <laughs> there's a, a different level of of, of skill set that comes into play and then also of, of urgency too. And so I really appreciate that perspective. And I, I hope people listening can maybe soften a little bit to stakeholders because I, I do think we're like, oh, here we go again. They just don't get it. Mm -hmm. And or, oh, this person, they're going to ask me to do, do this thing. They always do that. And I think we can get in this really bad cycle and that's not helping to build any trust uh, either. And so if we can take a step back and say, our job is to help make them the hero. And in doing that, we are also helping to like make ourselves, you know, a hero, or at least, you know, a big part of that story. Um, then everyone wins in, in that mm -hmm. case too. And so, you know, if, if we're looking at this now from a skills perspective, like how, how do we do that? Right. So like what skills do L and D practitioners need to focus on? So if we're saying, okay, I want to go out there, I want to be better at my job. I want to become a trusted learning advisor. What skills do you, would you say that L and D pros need to really focus on developing to, to do that and become better at being trusted learning advisors? Well, there happens to be an entire chapter dedicated to that. So if you're reading the book, definitely check that chapter out, but I'll give you some quick sound bites. Yes. We need a lot of skills. 
And, you know, I want to jump back because earlier you used the word experts and it can get overwhelming with everything that we need to have in our toolkit. Because at the end of the day, if the question about skills is we need to have the largest toolkit possible. We need to have an awareness of every platform, every vendor, every methodology that's out there. We don't have to be experts in them. And we don't need to be experts in a lot of things because we need to be learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. I am not an expert in much of anything, but I know how to get to the data, to the information. I know how to learn it in that moment of need. And that's what it's important for us to remember. Don't get overwhelmed by all of the skills, all of the tools, all the vendors. Just have an awareness of it because you can go and figure it out later but you need to know which tool is the right tool to use for the right problem. So some of the skills that we need to have, you know, think about critical thinking, problem solving. So specifically learner experience design, which you talked about user experience design, design thinking. So any type of human centered design skills, because spoiler alert, we're designing for humans. You need to understand agile thinking, you need to understand the business, you need to understand change management, strategic planning, uh, communication skills, you know, storytelling is important. Empathy, extremely important. You talked about empathy for your stakeholders. Absolutely. Uh, they can frustrate us, but remember, they're probably order takers as well. They may have a fire going on that they need to put out. They've got 10 other things happening. It's our job to support them. So we need to have empathy towards them. Uh, I, I could list off a hundred other skills, but I don't want to overwhelm people. So communication, uh, critical thinking, problem solving, interpersonal skills, um, research. You need to be able to research. One of my best practices is I try not to use my voice. I try to use the voice of data. I try to use the voice of stories. And the best data set that you can gather besides, you know, World Economic Forum, McKinsey, is your internal learners conducting qualitative research, not quantitative, because then it's like, yeah, 75 learners say this. No, I want their words yeah. and I want to be able to use their words with my stakeholders so that it's not, um, Sarah, you don't know my business, You're right? It's not my words. It's here's 25 learners and this is what they're saying. And I've synthesized it down to this problem statement. Stakeholder can't argue with their own business. They can argue against you and me, yep. that's fine, but they can't argue with them. So get access to those individuals. Qualitative research is so powerful. I love that. I think so much, so many people put 99.9% uh, .9 of their efforts into the quantitative. And mm -hmm. so I really, I, I talk a lot about this too, even with my career coaching clients who are looking for new roles and they're like, I don't have a number. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be a number, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be quantitative. Talk to me about like some of the qualitative data that you have. What was some of the feedback that you got? What were some of the observations that, that you made, right? Like that qualitative is so, so important. I think people, people focus so much on, on the, on the quantitative piece. So I appreciate you bringing that, bringing that up. And I think with that too, you know, we have listeners who really run the spectrum of roles listening to this show. So we have people who are brand new entering learning and development for the first time, all the way up to VPs, CLOs who are, who are listening and you know thinking about their, their own careers and their own development. But there's a lot of people who listen who I know aren't responsible for the overarching strategy. They don't, they're not the ones necessarily with a seat at the table. So they're probably might be listening to this and saying, wow, this will be great one day, right? Mm -hmm. One day when I'm in the, this leadership role, this is, I, you know, I want to become a trusted learning advisor. This is how I'm going to do it. But what can people do now, right? So people, people who are in these individual contributor like roles who do hold less authority how can they start to become a trusted learning advisor without necessarily having the quote unquote power uh, mm -hmm. to have that seat at the table? One myth I just wanted to dispel quickly is it doesn't matter what your role is, your title is, at the end of the day, none of us really have power. I'm a CLO. I've been a CLO for multiple organizations. I have very little power. I, I have some influence, and, but all of us can have influence. And so we need to look for those opportunities. It doesn't matter what job title you have or where you are in your career, you have the opportunity to have influence. So look for those, I'll call them elevator moments, 
Um, but just don't don't think that one day when I get to be a CLO, I'm going to have authority and power. And I'm going to be able to make change. I know I thought that. And <laughs> now that I'm here every day, I'm like, oh, where, what do I need to do to get that authority, to get that power? Because I still don't have it. That being said, um, for those who are earlier in their career, you know, the trusted learning advisor is a mindset. It's not a job title. It is a journey. It is not a destination. So even again, with my title and my career, I'm still treated like an order taker every single day. But it's my responsibility to have that design or design thinking. <laughs> design thinking is important, it's, but it's my responsibility to have that trusted learning advisor mindset so that I'm approaching conversations in a meaningful way. I'm still building relationships. I'm still trying to have influence. I'm building the trust and credibility. And I'm keeping my practitioner skills sharp. But again, uh, for those earlier in their career. So first of all, develop this mindset. Look for ways to have influence where you can. Look for ways to build relationship with the business. Um, frontline workers, we often overlook those, but those are the ones whose problems we're trying to solve. I would rather spend more time with frontline workers, understanding their plight, their challenges, than managers or leaders. Because when our leaders are making these decisions, often they're seven, eight, 10 levels removed we have the opportunity to build relationships with frontline workers to get their data. So something that you can do, regardless really of, the, of your role, is look for those champions. Who are the people that like L&D? I know the people that don't. They scream the loudest. <laughs> they fill out their surveys in all caps. We know who they are. We know the, where you live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who are the people that like us? And build relationships with those, even if it's just five, six, seven people in the business, that you can connect with and say, hey, what, what's it like for you? Hey, we're getting ready to launch this program. What do you think about it? Is it actually going to hit the mark? Do people even know that we're launching it or that we've launched it? Um, you know, and then build up your own practical experience as well. So, you know, that field work is important. Get involved with uh, industry associations. Share your stories as well. And, and not just the good ones, because we do a great job of marketing to ourselves and we package up these stories in a really pretty way, and I do it as well, but there's a lot of the dirt and the ugliness and the things that don't work and all the struggles that we face behind the scenes. And I don't see enough of those, which is why I try and share those where I can. Um, so share those stories as well. And if you are new in your career and you're like, yeah, my organization doesn't create experiences for me to do this, volunteer. You know, I encourage people like set up an Upwork or a Fiverr account. You know, if you're a new instructional designer, get your practice there. Uh, do some freelance work where you can churches, nonprofits, other places, build up that experience because every experience you have is going to help you be a more credible, more experienced practitioner. And that's really what we need to keep in mind is we are or we should be practitioners. There's a lot of quote thought leaders, but I find that they're removed from yeah. doing the work. I don't ever want to remove myself from doing the work. I, you know, yeah, I teach, I write, I do all this other stuff, but I, my full-time job is a practitioner in the field, doing the work so that I can learn about what's happening now. And then I can go back and share that with, with our, our industry. So those are a lot of that. different sound bites. Yeah, no, they're the fantastic. Book. Yeah, that, well, of course we know we got it. We can't we can't give it all away here, y'all. Uh, but I also think too, going back, actually, really kind of having a full circle moment too. You had mentioned in your career what was so helpful to your growth and becoming a trusted learning advisor was being that linchpin, and that's really what I'm hearing you say here too, of like being able to find these problems and and helping to solve them, and you know, not just focusing on what's not working, but focusing on like who who is who is paying attention to y'all and who's your champions and how can you use them to to your advantage too. So, I, and I love that. Yes, becoming a trusted learning advisor. I I, I wrote down that it's a mindset, right? It's not necessarily a a job title there too, and doesn't matter if you're new in your career or you've been in it for the last you know, several decades, there's always an opportunity for us to shift our mindset to be, be in the trusted learning advisor mindset. And I think if we, if we can start to embody that, then we start to call that in too with the people that are, are around us. And I know that's what your book is, is really going to help all of us do. So speaking of your book, I'm going to ask you to pick favorites. So if there was one chapter from your book that you could gift to your past self, 
which chapter would it be and why? It would be the last chapter, which is best practices of a trusted learning advisor, <laughs> because it kind of reinforces everything else that was in the book. Uh, but I feel like that's that's cheating a little bit. Kind of cheating, but yeah. you know, we can we can take it. But if there's a second chapter that you would give to yourself, <laughs> there is. Um, it would be what you brought up earlier, which is um, the art of saying no without saying no. And oh, really, the chapter is called "Overcoming Resistance." Yours and theirs, because we have a lot of resistance to our stakeholders sometimes, and also yes. they have resistance to us. And so I think that chapter is really important to navigate through our own mental blocks and our own biases towards our stakeholders and recognizing again, at the end of the day, they're human as well. They've got a lot of problems. We're not the only ones that are understaffed, don't have enough budget, don't have enough time. A lot of other business units in the organization are facing the exact same thing. And so we just need to be mindful of that and make them again the hero of their story because that's why we exist we exist to solve problems within our organization we don't exist to make ourselves look good and hey look how great lnd is no one cares about that piece what they care about is what can you do for me how can you make my experience a little less painful and help me learn and grow um, subtly along the way and the reason i say subtly is one other thing i'll share is watch your language we in L&D tend to use language that's only meaningful to us. You ask anybody outside of our field, hey, do you like the LXP? What is an LXP? <laughs> What's an LMS? What's a MOOC? You know, what do you mean ILT, VILT? What do you mean level three survey? No one cares about any of that. And it's not their responsibility to care. But it is our responsibility to know their language and their terminology. So I'm going to give you one last best practice for free. Ask your stakeholders for an acronym guide, a definitions guide. If they don't have those, talk to frontline workers and find out what, like, what, tell me about the vocabulary. What's your strategy? What's your mission? What's your vision? Any PowerPoint decks that you have from the last couple of years that the business partners might have shared, go through those and pick out keywords in there and start using those keywords in your everyday vocabulary with your stakeholder. That is a quick, easy way for them to start to recognize, wait, maybe Keith does know my business because they love to say that all the time. Oh, you don't know my business. Mm -hmm. You're not in sales. You're not in marketing. You're not in this. You're not. No, I'm not. But. I can spend the time to learn your business and you have to do that as a trusted learning advisor. Absolutely. So speaking of the trusted learning advisor, where can people grab a copy of this wonderful, wonderful book? I know everyone will be, I'm, I can only imagine, I almost, there's a, a book that I have that like for, from an L&D perspective, it's like my it's obviously my most utilized book. I spilled the green smoothie on it. It's highlighted everywhere. It's underlined <laughs> everywhere. I can only imagine that your book is going to A, be that for me and then also for many people. So where are people going to be able to purchase this book and how can people stay connected to you and all of the great work that you're doing? Amazon, 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 easiest way to purchase it. Uh, there is a site that I put together, thetrustedlearningadvisor.com, that does have a book club guide. So I do encourage you, especially if you are a learning leader, to use this book to create a book club with your team. Or again, be a linchpin. If you're not a learning leader, take the book to your learning leader and encourage them to create a book club with it, because that gives you the opportunity to go through this journey with your team members. This should not be a solo experience. It's still valuable for you, but one of the things that our stakeholders do is they look at our L&D group as a whole and they determine how mature are they? Are they order takers or are they L&D practitioners? Or are they trusted learning advisors? And so while you may be on a journey to be a trusted learning advisor, you're doing a disservice to your team by not bringing, you, not bringing them on that journey with you. So uh, the trustedlearningadvisor.com, there is a book club guide out there. Otherwise you can buy the book on Amazon. And you can add me on LinkedIn, very active there, and would also love your feedback on the book. So if you're reading it, you're like, oh, I disagree with this, or, ooh, there's something missing, let me know so I can gather that data and put that in uh, version two. We love that. Well, Keith, thank you so much for hopping on today. This was, I mean, having 
had an advanced copy and re reading your book and having chatted with you before, um, it was just such a pleasure getting to dive a little bit deeper into your story and how you got to where you are and how that really impacts how you're viewing this idea of becoming a trusted learning advisor, not just from a skill set perspective, from a mindset perspective too. So I can't, I cannot thank you enough for hopping on today. And I know you're in the middle of, of going to a conference and working on your, you know, your, your own learning and your own development too, and your speaking and all of those fun things as well. So thank you so much for sharing uh, so much of your brain and your wisdom with us today. I can't wait to have you back around version two and everyone go out there and buy the trusted learning advisor and mark it up, highlight it, underline it, book club it, do all the things. But Keith, thank you so, so much for hopping on today. My pleasure. And again, Sarah, I appreciate everything you do for our community because I know you spend a lot of time helping those transition into the field, especially teachers transitioning to learning from a corporate perspective. And you know, teachers and so many people have so many transferable skills that they aren't aware of. And I know you're a big advocate for understanding your transferable skills. I am as well. We are much more than our job titles. You know, those are so limiting to us sometimes. So just keep that in mind. Understand your transferable skills. Know that, yes, we are an inclusive environment. Anybody is welcome to join L&D, but do yourself the favor. Pay attention to what Sarah is sharing and build your skill set so that you have the credibility to build the trust and to back up what you say is the right solution, why it's the right solution, um, and one of the ways you can do that is by becoming a trusted learning advisor. We love it. We love it. Well, Keith, thanks so much again. And I know this will not be the last time we chat about all of this. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, Sarah. You too. Thank you so much for listening to the L&D Career Club podcast. If today's episode sparked anything inside you, I would love to hear about it. Feel free to share your ahas and takeaways by sending me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or by leaving a podcast review. And if you want more support on your L&D career journey, I invite you to join us inside the L&D Career Club membership, where we are redefining what it looks like to grow in your L&D career. Visit theovernighttrainer.com slash programs for more information and to activate your membership. See y'all back here next week.